I underestimated, Steve, the complexity of launching a fund, but I felt like I could do it on my own and with the support of some others. And so those next two to three years were customer discovery. What's happening in venture? What's broken? What needs to be fixed? I really approached it as much as I could as not an incumbent, not as someone who's spinning out of a firm and is just going to kind of duplicate what that looked like, but as someone who's asking what is broken and how do we fix it? Welcome. You're listening to Alternative Universe, a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lay beyond the conventional. I'm super excited uh, for our guest today, and thanks so much for joining us. I'd like to introduce Mark Phillips, who's the founder and managing partner of 11 Tribes Ventures. In his role, Mark leads the efforts around sourcing and investing while also supporting the 11 Tribes portfolio companies. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mark. Steve, it is great to be here. I love the name too, Alternative Universe. It's it's, uh, it's very meta and it really gets a lot of ideas going. So I am really happy to be here. You know, it's hard to put it into a box and we tried. It doesn't work. And so alternative universe, I think, works well um, for the types of conversations we have. But, you know, just looking over your bio, it's impressive, Mark. And, you know, I'd love to just hear it from you, but you always haven't been in venture. You worked your way here. And we'd, I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story on how you got to be where you are right now. I'd love to share it. It is different. It is not the tried and true venture. You know, a lot of folks who start funds... We launched this about four years ago. A lot of them spin out of larger funds because they have their own thesis or maybe they've got more energy than the existing GPs. That wasn't my story. I'll, I'll share a little bit about it and then we'll dive in. Uh, I'm born and raised in Chicagoland. I went to a small liberal arts school in the west suburbs of Chicago called Wheaton College, which was great. Um, I've got a, a wife and two kids at home now, which is great, both boys and a third one on the way. So that's just a quick on the, on the family side. Um, three boys should be interesting. But I started my career. I three girls, Mark. Yeah, uh, so. yeah, um, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and, and a baby due in three months. So All right, we're gonna we're gonna steer clear of social circles. <laughs> so I started my career in management consulting. So I was at Accenture for about four and a half years, primarily focused on financial services. So we were doing strategy consulting, three to six month engagements. You know, I was on the road seventy-five, eighty percent of the year, and so that was a real grind. I knew I wasn't going to start a career or build a career there. I should stay. And so I left to get my MBA at the University of Chicago. And when I went to Booth, Steve, and I think I've shared pieces of this story with you, but for the audience, when I went there, two really meaningful things happened. First, it really took me off the track of focusing on management consulting. I knew that I wanted to kind of find a different path. Going in, I really had thought private equity might be the route for me, maybe an operational role, something to that effect. But as I got into Booth, something really interesting happened. My four-year-old nephew at that time, this was 10 years ago, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And for those who don't know much about the market, I didn't. Uh, this was you know, mid-2010s. The technology market for type 1 diabetics was very nascent. There wasn't a lot of technology that had been built into what they were trying to do from a health outcomes perspective. So I started a company called Diasense. And Diasense was designed to help type 1 diabetics better measure their blood sugar and insulin usage through an IoT hardware device that had a software and analytics platform. I built that for about two and a half years, all while going through booths. I took it through all the entrepreneurial classes. I learned a ton about starting and building and trying to scale a business. But as we got to our Series A to raise capital, what became very clear was we were building the analog solution 
to this problem to what is now the digital continuous glucose monitor, a CGM. And the CGM is incredible. I mean, it's basically an external pancreas. Everyone should use it, but it was bad timing for Diasense. And so ultimately we had to shut that business down. And I share that story, again, a very different story than most fund managers probably start with, but it gave me a perspective at a pretty young age, Steve, on what I can only describe as the strain of entrepreneurship, right? What that does to someone's psyche and to their identity and to their sense of self-worth, right? And if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, I'm guessing you know what that feels like because when you're building something like that, you want to give it all of yourself. Like you desire that, but that also comes with a lot of challenges. And so when I had to shut that business down, I had to grapple with, man, truth be told, my identity was totally wrapped up in Diasense. That's what I thought made me important. Mm. And a little bit of perspective, really, I think I look back on that failure with a lot of gratitude because I think it gave me a perspective on, man, that's not the right way to build. Yeah, it's such an interesting um, dilemma. I think founders share that, but a lot of driven people, you know, you put everything you have into an ambition and when it doesn't work out or get you the type of outcome that you're aiming at, it's really deflating. It's hard to separate yourself. I had a mentor once who shared that with me. The advice was, if the idea doesn't work, it didn't mean Steve didn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's really I, good. I love that perspective because you can give your heart and soul to something. And just because you didn't get the outcome that you were aiming at, it didn't mean you failed. Right. Mm-hmm. So I love it's that. It's not quite the opposite, right? It's not quite. I, that's so insightful. I think any failure is really clear. It's so hard in the moment to believe this, Steve, but any, any failure is just a step closer to where you're supposed to be. And what's crazy, and I'll finish the second half of my story, is now I look back on the failure of Diasense, and it is the only thing that are really a primary driver behind the vision we have for what we do at 11 Tribes. And so I, again, gratitude is the only word with a bit of time and perspective that I can use to describe that experience of failing at Diasense. I'm grateful for it. So fast forward, I, I finished up at Booth. I actually got a job working in venture. So after that, after I had a little bit of time to think, I was like, man, I'd love to solve this problem from the other side of the table. So I got a job working at a, a firm in, in Chicago. I really didn't like it, Steve. I found it to be just really transactional. And I'm just so convinced that at the stage of investing, we focus on seed in Series A. It is a relationship business. I knew I didn't want to stay at that firm. I, I stayed for about six months. And then I left to go get, move into consulting again, actually really more as a stopgap. I viewed that that next two or three years as customer discovery. After I left that venture fund, after six months, I made up my mind. I wanted to launch my own. I saw what I needed to see. I felt like I underestimated, Steve, the complexity of launching a fund, but I felt like I could do it on my own and with the support of some others. And so those next two to three years were customer discovery. What's happening in venture? What's broken? What needs to be fixed? I really approached it as much as I could as not an incumbent, not as someone who's spinning out of a firm and is just going to kind of duplicate what that looked like, but as someone who's asking, what is broken and how do we fix it? I do refer to myself as the founder of 11 Tribes because we're a startup and our product is an investment thesis. And it's been really fun building it. So to get you all the way to where we are today, 1819, I, I uh, incorporate, I set up the LLC. In 2020, COVID hits. And actually in May of 2020, I quit my day job uh, consulting. My wife looked at me from across the table in middle of May. We're all locked up in our houses. And she said, if you don't try 11 tribes, will you regret it? And in an instant, I said, always. I'd always regret it. So she said, let's go. And I had a six-month-old at home. And we had about a year's worth of savings you know, stockpiled. And we went for it. So in May of 20, I quit my job. 
And now we are, you know, three plus years into this thing and raising our second fund and just trying to trying to think about venture capital a little bit different. I love that, man. And you got to get into the name. So yes. tell me about the origin of the name 11 tribes. It, it feels like something I want to be involved in. I appreciate so, that. <laughs> I want to know. I appreciate that. Where did you it know, come from? I love the question. And faith is a critically important part of my life. And at every stage of the journey, I just told you my faith journey was at a different place. But ultimately, I feel so motivated by what I believe from a faith perspective, right? And ultimately, if I can synthesize that, it's that I was created to work. I think work is an incredible blessing if it is viewed with the right lens. I think the challenge we face, Steve, is we live in a world where 80 plus percent of people feel unfulfilled in their work. And my heart breaks for those people because showing up every day with no vision, no purpose, no meaning behind the work you do, that's that's hard. I wish don't wish that on my worst enemy, I guess is how I can put it. So the name is biblical, comes from the Old Testament where we have the 12 tribes of Israel, they're God's chosen people. And what's interesting is of those 12, only one was set apart as sort of the pastors, the priests. That tribe was the Levites. They were set apart by God and they were you know, designed and curated to be the church pastors and those days the priests. And the other 11 had a similarly important and meaningful role, Steve, but that role was the marketplace. And so the 11 tribes, they're equally called, right? We can't forget that part. They were chosen, they were set apart, but they were called to be marketplace builders. And so we don't have a faith mandate in our fund. It, it's what matters to us. And so we're as authentic as we could possibly be. But our whole point here is work and particularly entrepreneurship, it is a calling. You do not quit your W-2 high paying job with cushy health insurance to go build a company that is a, a you know on a, a only a business plan as it stands today if you don't feel called to that, right? And so we want to support those 11 tribes with the same intentionality that many support the one. Uh, and so that's really what we feel called to do in the world of venture capital. I love that. I love that. And and the way that you started, I actually just read a post earlier today from um, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who shared an insight. You know, he focuses on behavioral finance. And he shared that eight out of 10 people don't have an identifiable passion. It's a problem, right? Yeah, and, yeah um, it is. You know, he closed it with, telling someone to follow their passion isn't all that actionable of advice right. if you don't have one identifiable. And mm -hmm. so I love when, when someone's able to identify that and then also show how they've been motivated to work towards it. And, you know, I find that often in these conversations that um, folks take that responsibility of stewardship seriously. Yeah. I love, I love that that spilled into the name of your, of your fund and your venture here. Yeah. That's an interesting statistic. I, I wish I had like a magic wand to solve for that. Of course, I'm incredibly biased, but I think entrepreneurship has a huge role to play there. I think if we can build organizations who have a focus, not just on a financial bottom line, right? But they're focused on how do we build something that actually makes the world a better place? Then they grow and they scale and they hire tens and hundreds of thousands of people who hopefully share that vision. Right. Because I do think the marketplace has an opportunity. I think there's an incredible opportunity to give people that passion to say, hey, I'm really passionate about building fintech solutions to bank the unbanked. I'm really passionate about building agricultural solutions to make sure that, you know, we're providing as much agricultural opportunity to future generations as we are to ourselves. Right. There's opportunity here. There's opportunity everywhere. We just have to be intentional about not losing sight of the things 
the passions that are really the things that encourage us to start these businesses in the first place. It's so easy to let the pursuit of making money get in the way of the things that actually motivate us in the first place. It's so easy. And we have to avoid that. And that's really where we as a fund feel like we have a responsibility to support entrepreneurs with that vision. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. There's something I always like to remind myself of the teams that I work with, if I'm ever in leadership roles, which is always to focus on having that mindset of abundance. I feel like when we let that gathering of money and having financial outcomes be the only driving force it that creates a mindset of scarcity yes it does absolutely uh, because it's a zero-sum game right either i get the money or i don't and that sucks like that's a really hard (laughs) place to be and we understand it for the listeners there's a book that everyone needs to read if this topic is engaging to you it's called completing capitalism Mm. have you read it steve does that ring a bell i have not Man, you got it. You got it. It's so short. It's so it's so simple. I'm a Chicago grad, so this is a little bit of like heresy. But in the 1970s, Milton Friedman came up with what we would define as our existing definition and thesis of capitalism. He's a UFC guy. It was that a capitalistic system is designed to maximize for financial capital. So if you're a business owner and you have shareholders, your responsibility to those shareholders is to maximize financial capital. And that's because in the 1970s, that was probably the scarcest form of capital. Well, really, as, as the book talks about it, there's four types. There's financial capital, there's human capital, social capital, and environmental capital. And you can kind of make out what each of those are. The book does an incredible job of making an argument for, as we complete capitalism, we need to move away from a maximization function, and we need to move towards an optimization function. And I love that language because I think double, triple bottom line feels a little bit lazy at times, if I can be totally honest. I think this idea of optimizing for four types of capital as opposed to maximizing for one is a brilliant way to think about capitalism sort of as we move into the next decades or centuries of what capitalism can look like. So for anyone who's interested, I highly suggest the book. It's, it's fascinating, right? Because if you maximize even for, let's say, social capital, that's socialism, right? That doesn't work. And so it's, it's pointing out that anytime you create a maximization function, it's going to come up with flaws. Mm. But if we focus on that optimization, we can really have an impact to the way that we grow the marketplace. Right. And not just a marketplace, but a culture and a community. Right? 100%. 100%. That's balanced. So. Feels like an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that. That's actually a good segue into one of the questions. And I've heard you share this before. I know it's something that's at the foundation of your your thesis with 11 Tribes, but um, you talk a lot about founder outcomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit as kind of a, I guess, a motivation or a North Star of, of 11 Tribes. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And it is. We try to, well, words are powerful. Words have to have meaning. And this idea of a founder outcome has really oriented self is sort of the, the long pull in the tent for us as we think about deploying capital. So to kind of continue the story, I suppose, which is maybe a great way to segue, as we deployed our, or raised and deployed our first fund, and really based on my experience as a failed founder, the question that it begged for us, Steve, was in the world of startups, and, and a lot of this is coming from completing capitalism as well, as the world of startups, there's two connected but not correlated outcomes, right? There is the business outcome, which as a society, we are trained to measure exit valuations, IRRs, cash flows, right? You could go talk to anyone on the street and you could tell them what an exit valuation means, right? how much this company got sold for. And they'd be like, yeah, I understand what that means. We're trained to measure those. But there's another side to the equation that we don't talk about. Like we just don't talk about it. And we're now calling it the founder outcome. 
And I think it is as critically important to the success of a business as the business outcome itself. How do you measure it though? Well, you can talk about mental, emotional, spiritual health. You can talk about battles with depression, anxiety, substance abuse. I think one of the most important metrics is relationships. Are you still with the spouse or partner that you started this business with? Do your kids still talk to you? You know, I've got two boys at home. This is going to be three. Like if I'm building this in 10 years from now, I've made bunches of money for my investors and everyone involved, but my two or three children don't speak with me. Man, I should quit right now. I really should. And so it's fascinating, right? Because you can have a, a failed business outcome with a successful founder outcome. But what's interesting is I don't think you can have a failed founder outcome with a meaningfully successful business outcome, right? So these two things, they're connected, but they're not correlated. And so to kind of get to the punchline, and I'm going to use similar language from completing capitalism, we think traditional venture capital is a maximization function. It's maximizing for the business outcome. We are building an investment strategy that's focused on the optimization of both founder and business outcomes. And so let me dive into that. What does that mean? Well, we have a couple of strategies around this. The first is what we call our 2% founder resilience commitment. In agreement with our LPs, we allocate 2% of every invested dollar that goes into a startup, into the founder, directly to the founders for them to put towards their own resilience. That's things like coaching, counseling, leadership development, organizational health, financial health. We've actually done some really awesome work over the last six months. We brought on a new partner and our head of platform, a, a guy named Jeff Baxter. And Jeff has helped us build out what we're calling our founder resilience menu. So this is a list of some of the world's best coaches, some of the world's best organizational health experts. And here's the key, Steve. When we're building that out, each and every one of them has to come from some sort of entrepreneurial background. Because what we found as we, as we introduced founders to coaches is there's a lot of great coaches in the world, but if you haven't felt that fire, if you don't know what it's like to not know if you're going to be able to make payroll next week, it's pretty hard to have a conversation with someone who's in the middle of it. And so that founder resilience menu has become an incredible asset to us. And I'm really proud to report, and I'm, not, I'm like not ashamed of this at all. I feel like that whole strategy, Steve, has become a competitive advantage. Yeah, no, I believe And so it. you talk about alternative universes here, right? Like I hope people hear that and think to themselves, okay, well, that's the right thing to do because you're actually caring for people. But when you can structure that in a business model that actually creates a competitive edge with re respect to making returns and generating you know, financial outcomes, win-win. And that really gives us a lot of energy here at 11 Tribes. That's really cool, man. I think a lot of the time when, you know, part of our audience are financial advisors who are looking, yeah. they're looking for opportunities, like you said, unique opportunities to expose their clients to private markets and venture capital. Right. But I think a lot of the time we only think of the financial performance. Maybe when you think of due diligence on a fund, mm -hmm. uh, this tends to not be on the no. menu, right? It's, no. not a, it's not a box that needs to be checked, which is how is this fund going to work with portfolio companies, leadership on mental health? hundred <laughs> percent. You know? Well, here, so, so here's the kicker. I, I, let me focus on that part of your audience here. So ultimately, we are an absolute ROI focused fund, full stop. Our strategy to generating returns is to actually invest in people. So here's some data. I'm looking at my screen here. If, I could if people could share, I would, but I'll just read it to you. So 72% of founders report having mental health challenges on a weekly basis. Okay, that's a huge number. 30% suffer from depression. They're three times as likely to have substance abuse issues, ADHD, and 10 times as likely to have bipolar disorder. Now, listen, I get there's some maybe adverse selection in there, right? Maybe people who struggle with those things are more tend towards the entrepreneurial side. It doesn't matter though. 
right? These are still people building businesses. And chances are, if you're invested in a fund that's got a portfolio of 30 companies, it's a lot more than one or two of your founders are struggling with these types of, op- of opportunities or, or challenges, I should say. More data on the other side of the equation. Founders who have worked with coaches, and this was a survey of over 2,000 founders from 2022. Founders who have worked with coaches reported having 89% reduced stress, 91% increased business performance, 75% improved employee retention, and 89% improved quality of life. That's wild. Now, again, this is uh, self-reported data, right? It's got its flaws. But just look at the degrees of magnitude here. And the analogy of athlete entrepreneur is such a powerful one. These are po- folks who are going out, they're in the arena, they're asked to do the impossible. There's tons of people rooting for them to fail. And all we're saying is, hey, let's allocate a little bit of capital just to give this person a resource, to give them a lifeline. It's been really cool to see what that turns into, Steve. We're measuring it really closely. You know, The data is still a little bit nascent, but I do think over the next three to five years, as a fund, as we deploy capital out of fund to two now, we're going to collect a lot of fascinating data. And I think we're really on the bleeding edge of trying to determine what does this type of investment, this type of focus do from, yes, a founder outcome perspective, but also from a business outcome perspective, right? Because it's not a maximization of founder outcomes either. We're right. optimizing here. And that's what we're really excited about. Mm, I love that. I mean, I love the idea of it, you know, being able to create some some data around it and really yeah. show the impact. I, I don't see how it couldn't be uh, yeah. or create a competitive advantage for you right. at the venture fund. Uh, I am curious right. to know, you know, you had some consulting background. You obviously have this private market exposure now. When you step in to work with your portfolio companies and that leadership, how do you guide them? I mean, I think a lot of the time, especially for founders, it's kind of like they just look to venture for money. Yeah. And so when it comes to these types of, um, whether it's personal guid- guidance around mental health or, or just, you know, better outcomes for the founder, but mm-hmm. also just around the leadership team and, and operating their business and finding success financially? That's a loaded question and a really good one. Um, you know, let me start with this. We own five to 10% of these businesses that we're investing into, right? So we got to start there. We got to start with the perspective on how much of a partner and owner are we? Doesn't mean we don't want to be plugged in, but we're not taking a controlling interest. Second thing I'll say is some of the best stuff I've ever read from you know, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett is you don't change people. I believe that. I believe that really strongly. I don't, I don't think people just, hey, because I asked you to do something different, you're going to change your ways. And so when we invest, we are investing in a founder that we deeply believe in, that we think has the right motivations. All I'm trying to do, Steve, is reorient their vision, maybe one degree to the right or to the left. It's really a simple reorientation of vision. Because if I didn't believe that they were the ones to bring this to market, we wouldn't have invested in the first place. But once we are a partner, I feel we have a responsibility to help them understand, hey, between now and the time that this business exits, whether successfully or not, there are immense landmines in your way that have everything to do with you as a leader. And I think your natural disposition is to ignore those because you are, you're a force of nature and you're convinced that there's no landmine that could take you off course. But I'm here to tell you that the, there are, they are absolutely there. And what, and, Maybe your vision is up like this. I just want to orient it down like this. Just to say, hey, look, you need to make sure your path is clear before you focus on everybody else as well. I have one founder in our portfolio. I love the way she describes it. She said, I am convinced that the only thing that has to grow faster than an organization is its founder. And I could not agree more. So long-winded answer to say, our participation as investors is not a, hey, we, we need one hand on the wheel and you can have the other. <laughs> Quite the opposite. 
we want to invest in people that we believe are two hands on the wheels, all eyes on the road. But what we want to make sure they're doing is don't just focus what's up on the cloud. Make sure you're focused on what's on the road in front of you. And if we can do that through a commitment to their founder resilience, through we didn't even get into our venture partners. This is our, our you know captive expert network, subject matter expertise. We bring subject matter experts to the table. We share our carried interest with them, Steve. GP carried interest because we know the value of having someone who's been there before at the table. All of these things contribute to what I think is a mindset of sustainability and profitability within the portfolio companies that we support. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like even at 5% five or 10% ownership, you're bringing a lot of resources to the table for any founder to have access to that is, is incredible. And it sounds like it would be in conflict with the reputation of venture capital, which is growth at all costs, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, break it, just run it until the wheels fall off and, and it either succeeds or breaks. It doesn't yeah. seem like that would be a mentality you guys carry into these relationships. It's not. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is the opposite. So that's an interesting segue. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it a step further because I think you got a lot of folks listening right now who are probably like, that's a cool why. I like that why. That's great. I support it. People are great. I want them to have good founder outcomes. Great. But we have to have a really interesting capital allocation strategy too, right, Steve? Mm-hmm. And what I found to be really interesting is we've deployed Fund One. We've learned a lot about what our allocation strategy looks like. Our why combined with a growth at all costs mindset, right? Hey, billion dollars or bust is completely disingenuous. What do I mean? It, I mean, if I go to a founder and we invest, we're like, hey, we care about you. We care about your relationships and your mental health, your battle with all these different things. But oh, by the way, I need you to grow ridiculously fast. I need you to scale up to a billion dollars in the next five years. So you're really not a worthwhile financial investment. And listen, I don't think any conversations like those are happening. But when you look at the model of some of these larger funds, it's implied, right? When you have a $4 billion fund, someone exiting for $250 million and generating a $10 million return for you does not move the needle. Again, Charlie Munger, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. The incentive alignment here between large funds and entrepreneurs is wildly misaligned. So what is our capital allocation strategy? Well, it starts with us being small. Fund two is intentionally targeted at $40 million. We've raised about half of that. It's middle of October today. Okay. But being $40 million allows us to go in and do a couple of really interesting things, Steve. We're nimble. We can be very price disciplined. So I also think this is another area that venture capital has lost its way. When you see a company that's raising you know, $25 million on a $100 million valuation, pre-revenue, pre-product, that's crazy. That is crazy. Full stop, right? You can't convince me otherwise. And so the types of businesses we're looking to invest into are the opposite of growth at all costs. We think that solid fundamental unit economics that allow you to make money matter. We think clear paths to profitability are really important. And we're getting t-shirts made that say profitability is the new series B. We're going to get those made. I'll send you one soon, Steve. So like that's what we're focused on is, right? So we just invested in a company doing $330,000 of trailing 12-month revenue. They're located in a tier two geography. What I mean by that is outside of San Francisco, New York City. And guess what? The valuation we got in at is $5 million. It's really low. And so the conversation I have with that founder is, hey, listen, success to us is underwriting to 10X. If you can get to a $50 million outcome, that allows us to, from a financial incentive perspective, generate the three to three and a half times cash on cash returns that we're targeting for our investors. But the beauty of it, here, and here's, I'll stop after this, but this is the beauty of it to me. I think all of that is great and it creates a different model 
We're investing in very different types of businesses than what you're reading about in the news, right? We're not investing in the next food delivery app. We're investing in businesses that are category defining, very niche, but very clear value to the customer. But here's the aha for me, Steve. I believe that over the last 20 years, the number of companies that have died in pursuit of a billion dollar outcome is astronomical because maybe they would have been a great $25 million of annual revenue, $100 million exit company. But someone told them, listen, again, incentive alignment, that doesn't work for me as the investor. And the reason it doesn't work for me as the investor is because I wasn't disciplined with respect to my entry multiples. And so we have modeled this out. And with an average valuation exit, because we're probably hovering around 8 to $10 million pre-money, that's sort of our average entry multiple, entry point. With an average exit of between 100 and $150 million of a nice chunk of our portfolio, we can generate top quartile returns in the world of venture capital. So ultimately, what this boils into is it is a lower beta. It is a lower volatility approach to venture. And I think this is where it's headed. I really think this is where the puck is going in the world of venture capital because founders realize they have a choice. And the choice we're giving them is sustainable growth, large ownership of your cap table. You don't have to raise $500 million of dilutive capital and a reasonable exit that allows you to have life-changing money as an entrepreneur. If we can align those incentives with the economics of our own fund, Steve, I think we've created a new category of venture capital. That's what I believe. And so this is this is what we're actively pursuing in fun too. I love this, man. And it it goes to show that I've always kind of felt this and the private markets, venture capital specifically, is one of the purest ways to do impact investing. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's not philanthropic, right? This right. can be for a gain, it can be for a reasonable gain, and it can cause it can be with purpose beyond financial yeah. And that's I right. think that that's huge. And I I, I applaud you uh, for uh, pursuing this and all the work that yeah. you've been to it, Mark. I appreciate it. I yeah. really do. It's been fun. We're, uh, you know, the why was really strong when we started, and I'm really encouraged by our our strategy now. You know, it's come a long way, and we've gotten better at knowing what we like and what we don't like. Here's the last kicker, Steve. Too really fascinating. If you look at the number of companies that exit each and every year, mm-hmm. that number balloons almost logarithmically when you get sub 100 million dollars. So let me unpack that, right? Okay, Salesforce, Workday, Microsoft. What I'm saying here is them acquiring a business for $75 million is a rounding error on their balance sheet. Right. And so again, the the competitive advantage is the the opportunities we afford ourselves with this disciplined approach, this lower volatility approach to venture. Yeah. Only only greater than we can imagine because the opportunities for exit increase based on the appetite of the acquirers. Mm. So it's another really critical point to this strategy, which I think gives us a really nice advantage. Yeah, it's the opportunities and the complexity. Yeah. It's a lot easier. Those those exits go through way faster. Yeah, yeah you don't have to worry about, you know, you don't have to worry about non-competition from the government, all these different things, right? So, <laughs> and here's the interesting thing, last piece. We have a company in Fund One that did this, Seed Series A. We participated in both. They didn't raise a Series B because they turned profitable and they're growing organically. And they're now doing north of $25 million of revenue per month. Wow. Per month. Wow. It's just incredible. And it doesn't preclude our portfolio from having those super outsized opportunities, right? The super outsized exits. But it does allow us to have a more sustainable, durable, and profitable growth curve. That's a great story, Mark. I can't wait to hear more after fun. Yeah, you and me both. You guys do more. (laughs) Uh, 
This has been really cool. One thing I'd like to ask, well, actually two things, but one first is I find that there is so much noise in our market. And uh, when it comes to podcasts, financial news, media, and I'm curious where your go-to is. If there's, if there's a source that you like to go to kind of keep your pulse on our industry, one of your favorites. It's so funny. I had a conversation with my colleague, Christina, yesterday, and she was bemoaning how many subscriptions she's made to like newsletters. You know, she's like, I need to unsubscribe from all of them. It is really noisy, Steve. And I find I'm the pendulum and I find myself swinging early on in this journey. I was just all consumption. And I've hit a point in my own sort of journey where I feel like I need to be more strategic with my consumption and more intentional with my own sort of thought and leadership internally. Those are a lot of lazy words. The single best thing that I see on a weekly basis is the Pitch Book Digest. They do their weekly roundup, right? It's so good. And it's not terribly noisy. And I feel like it brings everything to the surface. I have spent more time on Twitter than I care to admit with like a curated list of you know, venture capital experts. But what's interesting is at the end of the day, Steve, like that doesn't really move the needle for what we're doing. It's insightful and it can give you ideas, but it's not great. The single best podcast, again, it depends on what you're looking for. Because I think consumption can be dangerous. You you read this, you read that, you're like, well, am I doing what? Like, I haven't had any exits recently. Am I doing something wrong? The answer is no, right? We're in an industry where things take decades, not years. The single best podcast I have consumed is the Founders Podcast, right? And if you haven't heard it, this is the guy who goes through and he reads all the biographies of some of the greatest entrepreneurs in the history of the world. I have found Warren Buffett and Charlie Mungers to be great. And he synthesizes it in under an hour. Dave Senra, yeah, David Senra, Founders Podcast. It's, it's everywhere. It's free. When you listen to the stories of these founders, it's humbling. It's humbling. And I have learned a ton just from listening to it, Steve. And the other insight I've had is it's really hard to do some of the, like Henry Ford is another really good episode on that podcast. He had a terrible founder outcome. He had a terrible founder outcome. I've actually got an investor in our fund. I'm, I'm getting a little off track here, but I have an investor in our fund who knew Steve Jobs really well, worked with him. And what he said to me, is he, he said, I think Steve Jobs would have really disliked your model. I said, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, like he didn't think he needed any help. But then what he said was, what Steve didn't realize was Tim Cook was his 11 tribes. This guy said this to me. He said, what happened to Steve Jobs before he had Tim Cook? He got kicked out of his own company. What happened after Tim Cook came in? Tim smoothed over the water. He allowed Steve to have a, a sounding board, right? A, a check and a balance because he was an incredible entrepreneur, but he needed that balance. And so the thing I want to point out there is, yes, like we listen to the stories of these founders and we hear that they have these founder outcomes that are less than ideal, but we, we often need to go one step deeper to understand who are the people in their lives that were supporting them, that were keeping the ballast level. And I think in the Founder Outcome po- podcast, you hear a lot about that because this guy is going very deep into the lives of these founders. So yeah. very long-winded answer, but that's careful not to consume too much, Steve, is that probably the answer I would give for where I am right now. I'm trying to read books offline more often. Um, yeah. I'm trying to really get into the deep consumption as opposed to the scrolling of more newsletters because I think at times that just creates more noise and, and less hay. I love it. I love it. Really good advice. Yeah. So Mark, it's been great having you. I really appreciate it. And I, I know our guests appreciate it. You have an awesome perspective and you're doing great work. So yeah. Thank thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Great to be with you and excited to hear the perspectives of the other guests you bring on. I think this is a much needed, uh, a much needed podcast and 
bringing alternative and innovative perspectives to the world of finance is, is, uh, is a deeply needed thing. So thanks for doing the work. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.